1: Hey, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could join us today, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about some fun stuff that may actually challenge your thinking a little bit. So I'm just gonna warn you: my goal isn't to make you mad, but I'm gonna tackle a couple of topics in this hour that just might push you out of your comfort zone. You can always go back, right? Okay, this is no, there's no guarantee this is gonna keep you out of your comfort zone indefinitely. But I think these are the kind of things that need to be discussed, and uh, hey. If not me, then who? If not now, then when? Let's let's dive right in. I want to start by thanking the sponsors for my show, including org, pure light dot com, hsl ammo dot com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I also want to welcome LifesavingFood.com dot com to the website. Now there are there are links to each one of these sponsors in the show notes at the Brian Hyde i want you to just on your own when when it's convenient for you take a look at them see what they have to offer and if if you if they have something a service or a product that you need please do business with them that's all i ask okay you can give me credit for you know connecting you with them but but other than that you know just they're they're good people they're good businesses please consider doing business with them So here's where we're going to start. This is our first tentative steps outside of the comfort zone. Start with the observation, freedom scares some people. Now, maybe you're one of them. I don't know. I've talked to a lot of good people who've said, hey, I am all for freedom, but too much freedom is a very, very bad thing. It's pretty crazy stuff. But, but it's a legit fear in the sense that, uh, it, you know, it's true. Freedom is not the solution to every problem. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes people use their freedom in ways that you and I may not approve of. But the bottom line is freedom is what makes other solutions easier to achieve. So if you have problems that need to be solved, freedom is what creates the necessary atmosphere in which those problems can be solved. But I want to share with you some thoughts from Gary M. Gallus. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. And he poses the question, should anything be prohibited in a free society? All right. You ready for this? You take your blood pressure medication? Got a friend on standby to drive you home if need be? Okay. Maybe it's not going to be that traumatic. Gary Gallus says COVID triggered a massive upswing in government prohibitions in America. Many were prohibited from keeping their firms open. Many were forced to stop working. Many of our normal freedoms of association and travel were eliminated. Many rights, such as access to due process or contract enforcement, were effectively prohibited. And almost everyone can add to the list from their experiences. Now, Gary Gallus says that hyperdrive upswing in our enjoyment of government, enjoyments in quotation marks, uh, government dictation in our lives raises a crucial question for Americans, and that is exactly what should we prohibit in society? Now, it's hardly a new question, but he says we should rethink it because of the ballooning of what has been prohibited with little public conversation about central issues. And I love that he draws upon Leonard E. Reed, offering us insight on this issue in his Find the Wrong and There's the Right. That's chapter four in his 1968 accent on the right. Now, the key is to focus solely on what we agree is wrong and preventing that, which preserves far more of our rights, liberty and social cooperation they enable. The social cooperation that they enable, rather than government imposition and enforcement of what they decide, are the right answers. His insights are worth remembering. Quote, Those actions which are wrong in social relationships are the ones we should aim to prohibit by personal endeavor, by education, and, as a last resort, by society's formal agency of organized force, government. Thus, to analyze what should be prohibited as a means of opening to our vision the infinite realm of righteousness, end quote. Now, what does Reed mean by the infinite realm of righteousness? Well, ask what would be off limits if we only focused on prohibiting what we agree is wrong. Nothing more than that would be disallowed. That would leave open a far vaster array of possibilities for productive and mutually agreeable arrangements than the bacchanalia of prohibitions we've been forced to be a part of. Leonard Reed wrote Socialist and Libertarian, what really, in the ideological sense, marks the one from the other? The difference between the socialist and the libertarian thinker is a difference of opinion as to what others should be prohibited from doing. He wrote Man does not now possess instinctual do-nots, built-in prohibitions. Instead, he must enjoy or suffer the consequences of his own free will, his own power to choose between what's right and what's wrong, more or less at the mercy of his own imperfect understanding and conscious decisions. The upshot of this is that human beings must choose the prohibitions they will observe, conscious selection of the must-nots by variable imperfect members. In fact, the most advanced prohibition is the golden rule. As originally scribed, it reads, Do not do unto others that which you would not have them do unto you. Ever so many people will concede the soundness of the golden rule, but only now and then is an individual to be found whose moral nature is elevated to the point where he can observe this do not in daily living. Leonard Reed wrote, Not only does such a person possess a sense of justice, but he also possesses its counterpart, a disciplinary conscience. Justice and conscience are two parts of the same emerging moral faculty. so do not do unto others that which you would not have them do unto you. there's more to this prohibition than first glance reveals. Leonard Reed wrote nearly everyone for instance will concede that there is no universal right to kill, to steal or to enslave because these practices cannot be universalized if for no other higher re- or for no other higher reason. But only the person who comprehends this ethic, the golden rule, in its wholeness, who has an elevated sense of justice and conscience, will conclude that such a concession denies to him the right to take the life of another, to relieve any person of his livelihood, or to deprive any human being of his liberty. And Leonard Reed says, well, there are many who will agree that they personally should not kill, steal, enslave It is only the individual with a first-rate moral nature who will have no hand in encouraging any agency, even government, in doing these things for him or others. Anyone who gets the whole point of the Golden Rule sees that there is no escape from individual responsibility by resort to the popular expedient of collective action. Okay, maybe I'm the only person for whom that is. That's one of the most beautiful things I've read this week. That speaks to my soul, and I wish more people clearly understood and lived according to that principle. Let me restate it in in the way that my simple mind comprehends such things. The way I read that is, government derives its powers to act, to do whatever it is that we ask government to do, from we the people. Would you agree? Would you disagree? Okay, most people would say, okay, no, that makes sense. Government derives its powers from the people. Here's what that means, though, in the most practical terms. If there is something that would be immoral for you or me to do as individuals, it doesn't become moral when we outsource it to someone wearing a government uniform or acting under government authority. Stealing is still stealing, even if we call it civil asset forfeiture. Aggression and violence are still violence, even if it's given broad latitude by, you know, whatever rule-making committees or courts happen to be reviewing the use of that force. Gary Gallus asks, "How does the golden rule thus illustrate the dividing line between collectivists and libertarians?" And the answer from Leonard Reed is it's the difference of opinion as to what should be denied others that highlights the essential difference between the collectivists, meaning the socialists, statists, interventionists, mercantilists, and those of the libertarian faith. In fact, he says, take stock of what you would prohibit others from doing, and you will accurately find your own position in the ideological lineup. Note the collectivist philosophy. We, you and I, belong to the state. We are its wards. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but I hope this is at least getting some wheels turning in your mind. Okay, you're not ready to go full (laughs) anarcho-capitalism. That's okay. Maybe you're not even ready to, uh, you know, slide a little closer to libertarianism. But the basic moral principle of the golden rule combined with government can't do things that would be immoral for you and me to do? That's a pretty good place to start, understanding what good government
0: is and what it isn't. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is the Brian Hyde Show? Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: All right, we're talking about the Golden Rule indirectly. A great article here from Gary M. Gallas, who is drawing upon the considerable brain power of Leonard E. Reed in probing the question: Should anything be prohibited in a free society? And this is pretty good stuff. I mean, if you want to see the dividing line between collectivists and libertarians, I would have to agree. Collectivists, uh, and, and this means socialists, statists, interventionists, mercantilists, typically look at things as, well, if this is what the majority wants, if this is what the collective wants, this is what we can do. So if the collective votes, we need to steal Bob's motorcycle, we all like Harley Davidsons. He's got one, and we'd like it. Then, you know, they think it, somehow that becomes right. Whereas the libertarian—and I'm, I'm using this with the small L. This is not necessarily libertarian party, but uh, people who believe in individual rights would say, no. Regardless of what people may think about Bob and his Harley, there's no way we can vote ourselves the authority to take it from him. If it's taken from him, that still constitutes theft. Even if everybody agrees, Bob ought to give up that Harley so the rest of us can go for a ride. Gary Gallas, I'm sorry, this is actually uh, Leonard Reed, asks, where are the prohibitions? If you want to figure out what you would prohibit others would do, uh, prohibit others from doing, rather, he says that's where you'll find your own position in the ideological lineup. Now, I'm going to warn you, when you do this, Like me, you might be surprised to find out, hey, I had no idea there was a little tyrant lurking there inside my heart. But I promise you, it's there for most people. And that's one of the tough things is learning how to recognize it and then deny it a place in your heart or in your actions or your words. Leonard Reed says, where are the prohibitions? The program someone favors would cost X hundred million dollars annually from where come these millions Remember, the state has nothing except that which it takes from the people. Therefore, this man favors that we be prohibited from using the fruits of our own labor as we choose in order that these fruits be expended as the state chooses with police force as the method of persuasion. Yeah, suddenly those taxes aren't looking so sexy anymore, are they? (laughs) <laughs> the, that portion of our incomes is socialized which the state turns to its use by its, its prohibition of our use Leonard Reed says it follows then that a person would impose prohibitions on the rest of us to the extent that he supports governmental projects which would socialize our income now Leonard Reed then follows with a small part of what is a cornucopia of examples that people have accepted as justifying prohibiting our freedom of choice Leonard Reed wrote, there were ever so many who favor prohibiting our freedom of choice in order to pay for farmers not growing peanuts, tobacco, and other crops, or supporting socialist governments all over the world. Put men on the moon, subsidize below-cost pricing in air, water, and land transportation, education, insurance, loans of countless kinds, socialized security. How about renewed downtowns that consumers have deserted? See, this is where it starts to hit home, even in small-town America. Build hospitals and other local facilities. Give federal aid to this and that variety endlessly. He says another phase of socialism is the state ownership and or control of the means of production. Included among all the existing prohibitions of this type are the planning of all of all of the farmer's own acreage to wheat, cotton, peanuts, corn, tobacco, rice, even to feed his own stock. The quitting of a business, at will. The taking of a job, at will. The selling of a citizen's own product at his own price. For instance, milk, steel, and others. The free pricing of services, meaning wages. The delivery of first-class mail for pay. The listing of prohibitions is endless. And Gary Gallus's says, Reed then asks us a question made even more important by the recent expansions in government prohibitions. Which of all the prohibitions implicit in socialism do you or others favor? You see why I was warning about this can make you uncomfortable? Because a person who seriously looks at this may find, oh, there's some places where I'm not congruent with all that freedom that I claim to espouse. Leonard Reed says those among us with a libertarian devotion would, it is true, impose certain prohibitions on others. They quite accurately note that not all individuals have acquired a moral stature, a moral nature rather, sufficiently strictly to observe such fundamentally sound taboos as thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not kill. There are those who will take the lives of others and those who will take the livelihood of others, such as those who will pilfer and those who will get the government to do their pilfering for them. But he says most libertarian believers would supplement the moral laws with social laws aimed at prohibiting any citizen from doing violence to another person's life or another person's livelihood. In other words, their extension of life. Thus, they would prohibit or at least penalize murder, theft, fraud, misrepresentation. In short, they would inhibit inhibit rather, or prohibit the destructive actions of any and all. And that is all. Asserts the libertarian, freely choose how you act creatively, productively. For this is in the realm of what's right. I have no desire to prohibit you or others in this respect. I have no prohibitory designs on you of any kind, except as you or others would keep me and others from acting creatively, productively ourselves. That is, as we freely choose. I would not classify any creative action as a wrong action. Now, the libertarian in his hoped-for prohibition of destructive actions does no violence to anyone else's liberty. We must not, therefore, think of liberty as being restrained when fraud, violence, and the like are prohibited. For these destructive actions violate the liberty of others, and, therefore, they are not in the composition of liberty. Destructive actions are the negations of liberty. An accomplished libertarian would never prohibit the liberty of another. There we have it the all-out collectivists at one end of the ideological spectrum who would completely prohibit individual liberty and at the other end of the spectrum, the libertarians whose prohibitions are not opposed to but in support of individual liberty. And their prohibitions are few and as simple as the two commandments against assault on life and livelihood. Now, Leonard Reed says the libertarian observing that human frailties are universal balks at halting the evolutionary process which is the ultimate prohibition implicit in authoritarian schemes how can the human situation improve if the rest of us are prohibited from growing beyond the level of the prohibitionist imperfections human faculties can flower man can move toward his creative destiny only if he be free to do so in a word where liberty prevails what should be prohibited Actions which impair liberty. Let us find these and be rid of them, for they are wrong. Now, Gary Gallus says Leonard Reed laid out the massive chasm between the few prohibitions of what we all agree is wrong, necessary to liberty, and the panoply of prohibitions already part and parcel of imposed collectivism over a half century ago. Added prohibitions have since further constrained our power to make our own decisions, but their exponential expansion under the banner of COVID has multiplied that gap, making the issue even more important. Not only do we need to recognize and oppose further inroads into our self-ownership from where we've been herded, we must also apply our understanding to roll back what should never have rolled over us in the first place. I don't know how long it took for me to to make the connection that if you want to live in a truly good society, I'm going to use the word virtuous because maybe that has less negative connotations. Good. Good. According to whom? But if you want to live in a truly virtuous society, here's the kicker. You can't create enough laws, regulations, restrictions, etc., to make people good. Do you know why that is? Because good has to be freely chosen. Virtue has to be freely chosen. And that means, in some cases, they have to be free to choose not to be virtuous. If they harm somebody, hold them accountable. But if you want to live in a free
0: society, leave everyone who hasn't harmed everybody else alone. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Again, I'm going to invite you to check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You're not going to find a lot of awesome examples of my writing, but you will find some terrific articles, maybe a few notes that I've put along with them. But most importantly, if you are looking to expand your Knowledge of a given topic this is a great place to do it i'm I'm not you know saying yes, if you just read my show notes every day, you'll be ninety percent smarter than the rest of the public. I'm just saying if you're willing to do a little bit more digging, I can point you in the right direction where you go with it from there, you know my my hope is actually sincerely that you learn enough that you know more about it than than I could possibly know. The idea being that we can only share as much light as we ourselves possess. And it's sad to say this, but there are a lot of folks running around on borrowed light right now. Okay, it doesn't make them bad. It doesn't mean they're an evil person. It just means they're busy, maybe a little bit lazy sometimes when it comes to learning about, you know, what's going on. I want to shift gears here for a moment and talk about, we were talking about how freedom scares people. Right, So we prohibit things that scare us. I don't want people doing this because that would be bad. But if you really want to live in a system of freedom, you've got to accept that sometimes it will not be pretty. But your willingness to allow others to peacefully make decisions and act peacefully on their own, that's the measure of how much you actually stand on the side of freedom. And you'd think that the people would have learned this by now, especially, you know, given what we've been through in the last year or so. But there's even a lot of hesitation about uh, lifting lockdowns. And I, you know, I try to ascribe as noble intentions as I can to why people might react a certain way. Fear seems to be one of the biggest nominees in terms of why would people still willingly Put on a mask or be disturbed because somebody else isn't wearing one or because, you know, that was closer than six feet or I don't know. There are different tolerances that different people have. But, you know, here's the, the thing that I think we sometimes forget. When it comes to lifting the pandemic lockdowns, there are people who have been convinced That with enough government uh, intervention, with enough central planning, with somebody in authority telling us what to do, that's enough to keep us safe. But that's contrary to the nature of the world that we live in. Sam Ashworth Hayes has a great article about ending lockdown. This was published on Quillette, and it starts with a C.S. Lewis quote from the Screwtape Letters, which, man, if you haven't read the Screwtape Letters, it is worth your time. If for no other reason, it it is one of the best illustrations of ways in which we are manipulated and led astray. And it's done through through the dialogue between a, a devil and his nephew, who's an apprentice tempter. Such great insights into human nature, though, and just just a powerful, powerful way to to illustrate how we can be manipulated by some of those lesser emotions and lesser tendencies. C.S. Lewis wrote, consider, too, what undesirable deaths occur in wartime. Men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed and to which they go if they are at all of the enemy's party prepared. How much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes and amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie? And in this case, uh, Sam Ashworth Hayes says, watching the West hesitate over the end of COVID restrictions, attempting to judge the trade off between living life as normal and the number of deaths that would result from that has brought new clarity to a concept that had previously lurked just below the surface of consciousness. Modern societies are bad at handling the fundamental fact of individual mortality. So, you ready for some truth here? You are going to die. This much was guaranteed when you were born. Now that we don't like to think about this fact, categorized death as something that happens to other people, out of sight and out of mind, does not alter it. The daily cost of this inattention is low, consisting as it does of opportunities untaken and a lack of attention as to what one's legacy might be. The primary problem is that when we are forced to confront mortality unexpectedly, without the guidance of a faith rooted in the understanding that life ends in the grave, it can drive us to behave in strange ways. The justification for collective restrictions is that allowing people to judge their own risks would result in their failure to fully consider the consequences of their actions for others. In order to prevent harms at a significant scale which cannot otherwise be prevented, the state takes upon itself the right to intervene in the lives of its subjects in ways which would otherwise be seen as intolerable. Yeah, that sounds about right. Vaccination breaks the chain of that chain of reasoning by offering an alternative way to avert that harm in the form of individual protection and by reducing the scale of damage that might be done. As vaccination as vaccination efforts progress and the remaining vulnerable are increasingly those who refuse, as is their right to receive a vaccine. This moral argument for placing restrictions on behavior begins to vanish. So the UK's new health secretary, Sajid Javid, believes that this means entering a period where we will need to learn to live with COVID-19. Even if this means rising cases, there comes a point where the number of lives saved and illnesses prevented does not justify the costs of the measures required. Now, this is clearly not to the liking of everyone. The government strategy puts young people squarely in the firing line. The plan is clearly that the herd to decline to herd immunity, rather, will be driven at least in part by large numbers catching the virus without the benefit of both vaccine jabs. It is also, as Javed points out, means it means another period of strain on the healthcare care system. Now some of the objections arising, however, feel as though they're more motivated by more than a consideration of the trade-offs involved. For instance, uh, Sam says it's been noted before that action can be asymmetric. Once a system is in place, it benefits from the inertia of incumbency when people attempt to change it. The imposition of COVID restrictions took significant pressure. Accepting that people will die because of their removal is frightening. And it's unsurprising that some want restrictions imposed for longer. At the same time, A year of greatly reduced freedom appears to have left people with less tolerance for risk than might otherwise have been the case. With government officials talking at one point of the possibility of lockdowns preventing flu surges alongside circulating COVID this winter. So, what the last year seems to have driven out of our mind is the point that almost everything worthwhile in life carries some risk with it. Love means the possibility of rejection eating of choking, travel of crashing. It is possible to go too far in avoiding danger. A life without any risk would consist of sitting in a carefully padded room, waiting for the last sands to drain from the hourglass. Focusing only on the total number of deaths misses the other half of the ledger in terms of life unlived. Thinking of lockdown as a series of transfers between individuals casts these costs into sharp relief. How much time are we willing to take from the young to tack onto the lives of the elderly? What is an appropriate rate at which to exchange the two? How much have we already taken? Because that is, in one sense, what we're doing here. The treatment and cost of lockdown was locking people away and taking from them a year in the prime of their lives to preserve the elderly and the infirm. Now, Sam Ashworth Hayes, Ashworth Hayes says, as the risk to these groups shrinks with vaccination and the remaining vulnerable are increasingly so by refusal to be vaccinated. Demands to protect them at significant cost to other groups become something akin to following them to allowing them rather a veto on a return to life as normal. He says granting this through fear would need would be a tremendous error. As we end restrictions, he says, we will need to face up to our own mortality and acknowledge that no policy will keep us safe forever. See, I don't know how many people that would break through. And I say this with the understanding there were a lot of good people, really good people, people I love, who nonetheless really embraced and and lived, you know, on the fear of, oh, but this is what could happen. This is why we mask up. This is why we stay home. This is why we don't venture out. This is why we get the vaccine. I mean, there's times I feel a little bit bad for being so suspicious of it, but I don't know. When, when, when someone in power is flexing and really trying to push and impose their will upon the populace, I have a tendency to push hard the other direction. Maybe that's a bad habit. But the longer we go on, the more I realize, you know what? Those concerns I had appear to have been justified. And I feel for the folks who are now realizing they
0: may have been fooled. I still love them, though. Always will. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: So you're going to hear something rare today. I'm going to challenge my own assumptions. I don't like to do this a whole lot because sometimes it hurts. <laughs> but I think it's a healthy thing to do. Uh, you know, it's it, there's no denying the fact critical race theory, like it or not, it's a political football and it is squarely in play within the public school system. I don't think this is going to change anytime soon. You've got the teachers unions, the big teachers unions, major lobbyists that are saying, regardless of whatever laws or resolutions you pass, we will teach this to the children. I mean, this is getting pretty serious. If there were parents who were sitting on the fence about, well, should we keep Junior in the school or take him out? I don't know what more it would take. You know, I mean, send him home with a little red book from Mao. Spy on your parents. Tell us when they are, you know, departing from party orthodoxy. Even then, I think people would still find reasons. Yeah, but it's not that bad. You know, it could be worse. They could be teaching something really destructive. Okay. so I have really fallen along the lines of, hey, if you want this to be a non-issue, you just take it out of the school. Situation, or you provide school choice so that people can make their own decisions. Some people, hey, they may want their kids to be taught real history under the form of, you know, uh, critical race theory. I mean, it, it could happen. Others would say, nope, private school, religious school, charter school, Mister Hyde's homeschool. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody's not that desperate. But I have, I felt like there have been some very solid arguments made for how school choice would at least calm this down somewhat. Then I read an article today by Lawrence M. Vance, and now, hmm, well, I want to share with you what he says. I'm not sure that I agree, but I have to admit, this guy makes some really, really good points, which means I've got to think on it. I've got to do some weighing, some contemplation. That's why there's a little bead of sweat, you know, going down the side of my temple right now. The article is titled, Is School Choice the Answer to Critical Race Theory? And Lawrence Vance says, following the lead of lawmakers in Tennessee and Idaho, my state of Florida has become the latest state to ban the teaching of critical race theory in its public schools. As adopted by the Florida State Board of Education, the amendment banning the teaching of critical race theory states in part... Examples of theories that distort historical events and are inconsistent with state board approved standards include the denial or minimization of the Holocaust and the teaching of critical race theory, meaning the theory that racism is not merely the product of prejudice, but that racism is embedded in American society and its legal systems in order to uphold the supremacy of white persons. Now, Lawrence Vance says one reason this is such a controversial issue is if you ask 20 professors, politicians and pundits to define critical race theory, you'll get 20 different answers. According to the unapologetically left-leaning CNN, critical race theory recognizes that systemic racism is part of American society and challenges the beliefs that allow it to flourish critical race theorists to believe that racism is an everyday experience for most people of color and that a large part of society has no interest in doing away with it because it benefits white elites. Now, Kimberly Crenshaw, a founding critical race theorist and law professor who teaches at UCLA as well as Columbia University, says critical race theory is a practice an approach to grappling with a history of white supremacy that rejects the belief that what's in the past is in the past and that the laws and systems that grow from that past are detached from it. Then you have the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, which maintains the realities of systemic racism are still alive and well. They've characterized the bans on teaching critical race theory as an attempt to teach a version of American history that erases the legacy of discrimination and lived experiences of brown and black people. Oh, instead of wallowing in it, which I believe is is more uh, of what they would advocate. Conservatives, of course, see things differently. Students in our universities are inundated with critical race theory. Says uh, former president Donald Trump. This is a Marxist doctrine holding that America is a wicked and racist nation, that even young children are complicit in oppression and that our entire society must be radically transformed. Critical race theory is being forced into our children's schools. It's being imposed into our workplace trainings and it's being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbors and family. Now, back in May, several Republican members of Congress introduced a bill banning the teaching of critical race theory in federal institutions and a resolution highlighting the dangers of teaching the theory in schools. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who spoke before the Board of Education meeting, said that critical race theory would teach children the country is rotten and that our institutions are illegitimate. That's not worth any taxpayer dollars, he said. In a statement on Twitter, DeSantis DeSantis said the amendment protects students from being indoctrinated to think a certain way. Quote, critical race theory teaches kids to hate our country and to hate each other. It's state-sanctioned racism and has no place in Florida schools, he wrote. Now, the leftist National Education Association acknowledges critical race theory is being taught in public schools and defends it as reasonable and appropriate. So some conservatives and libertarians have posited school choice as the answer to the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. And this is nothing new, as these same conservatives and libertarians generally present school choice as the answer to nearly every problem with public schools. Whether it's low test scores, violence in schools, common core, high schools graduating functional illiterates, the decline in discipline and standards, the power of the teachers' unions restrictions on free speech, biased textbooks, school shootings, sex education, or the promotion of Islam, environmentalism, socialism, political correctness, evolution, homosexuality, or transgenderism, the answer always seems to be school choice. Many religious conservatives are still lamenting the elimination of prayer and Bible reading from schools, and the solution to them is, of course, school choice. So their children can go to a school that does have prayer and Bible reading. Now, here's where it gets interesting. He says there are five things that can be said about all of this that are not being said. First of all, although public schools should not exist. As long as they do, he says, there's nothing wrong with parents objecting to what they teach and trying to improve them. It's no different than wanting cities and counties to keep their parks and recreational facilities clean and free from homeless encampments, even though these things should be privatized. Second, just because a school is a private school does not mean that it also won't teach critical race theory. For example, a private school in Ohio sent a letter to the parents of two students informing them that their children will not be re-enrolled at the school because the parents launched a public campaign against the school's woke curriculum and promotion of critical race theory. Third, all parents have school choice right now. They don't have to wait for a voucher from the government to remove their children from public schools that are pushing critical race theory. They can homeschool their children or enroll them in a parochial school, a Montessori school, or an independent private school. That most parents don't have the money to send their kids to private school of their choice doesn't negate the fact that they have school choice right now that doesn't involve choosing where to spend other Americans' money. Fourth, the answer to a failed government program is never another government program. The answer is always the free market. The reason why private schools are expensive and not available in every community is because free and ubiquitous public schools have distorted the market. Government vouchers distort the market even more by establishing a floor below which tuition will not go because they remove incentives for schools to compete on cost. Fifth, all arguments about school choice ignore the real issue, government involvement in education. You see his point? Education is a service that parents can provide their children, just like health care, recreation, organized sports, music lessons, cultural activities, religious instruction, and haircuts. If they can't provide these things on their own or can't fully provide them, then it's up to them to seek providers with assistance from family, friends, organizations, uh, associations, and like-minded other parents, but never from the government. As the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises pointed out in his book, Liberalism, there is, in fact, only one solution. The state, the government, the laws must not in any way concern themselves with schooling or education. Public funds must not be used for such purposes. The rearing and instruction of youth must be left entirely to parents and to private associations and institutions. So Lawrence Vance says, hey, school choice is not the answer to teaching of critical race theory in public schools or the answer to anything else that is wrong with public education. I mean, I could be wrong here, but I'm I'm getting a pretty strong vibe that this is a guy who would be... Okay with the idea of separating school and state. What do you think? Hey, check out the show notes. Check out our lovely sponsors. There's a special section just for them in the show notes, which you'll find at thebryanhideshow.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.